You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 29th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. News from Russia about news from Russia. A look at another sub-optimal week for British democracy and... Years ago when I was a TV critic, as you mentioned, I was the first person ever to describe Arnold Schwarzenegger as a brown condom full of walnuts. (laughs) (laughs) I was was desperately seeking for a phrase which poets and TV commentators do. And that one went off and ran, and, and it was being quoted while he was running for governor. Remembering the incomparable Clive James, I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to today's edition of Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. We passed last month the 80th anniversary of Winston Churchill's famous quip that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. There is a makeable case that little has changed. However, for those still determined to understand the place, a new podcast may come in handy. Well, joining me now to talk about that and other things occurring in Russia this week uh, is Monocle 24's resident Russophile, Paige Reynolds. Uh, Paige, first to Medusa. They are the people doing this new podcast, but Medusa is not a new thing, we should be clear. Right, so the, the Medusa website is, is is nothing new. It's about five years old, uh, I believe now. And what they are doing today is finally kind of getting their excellent content sort of off the screen and into our ears, which is obviously uh, always a, a good thing for, for us people at Monocle24. Um, so their, the, the podcast has debuted today. It's called The Naked Pravda. So uh, a little bit of a play on the naked truth and of course Pravda, which was the official newspaper of the, of the Communist Party. Um, the show's first episode uh, is about a sexual assault case in Veliki Novgorod um, and kind of plugs into the state of women's rights and, and safety in Russia more generally, something that's sort of massively underreported. Um, and the other episodes coming up are about leaked databases and how the black market for this information is a key aspect of Russian law enforcement. Uh, about Russian tabloid journalism and its sort of reverberations in Western news media and uh, Kremlin clan politics and the power of presidential administration. So, I mean, for me, all topics that I'm very interested in, but I'm, of course, uh, a a bit of a Russophile, so hopefully they have a a ripple effect elsewhere. Um, For those unfamiliar with Medusa, though, what, what is its general thing? So I think Medusa's kind of USP, as it were, is the fact that it's uh, both in English language and in Russian. Mm. Um, the sort of the CEO of Medusa is uh, Galina Timoshenko, um, who was part of Lenta. Dot RU, uh, who were a massive news site uh, in, in Russia. And she was also with Conversant previously. Um, she was kicked out of Lenta in 2014 after publishing an interview with a member of the right sector who are a far-right Ukrainian nationalist group. Um, and, you know, she, she's, got a, uh, she's done many interviews and said that this private media site, Lenta, used to be quite small. Suddenly it started to have about 3 million uh, unique users a day. And that's when the Kremlin decided they actually wanted control of it, which they have now done. So she decided to leave Russia. Uh, she went to Latvia 
taking a lot of her colleagues with her and they set up Medusa. And what I personally think is is uh, great about Medusa is the fact that you've got this really, really high quality journal- journalism, which is often uh, written by Russians themselves, people who are insiders. So you don't get that kind of foreign correspondent outsider looking in kind of impression. Um and you're able to also read that in English, you know, which I mm-hmm. think is uh, which is something that you don't you don't often get. Uh, we should make it clear before we move off this subject that for people who have been moved to go and look for it, it's Medusa with a Z. If you Google the current spelling, <laughs> you'll just end up looking at lots of pictures of a scary woman with snakes where her hair should be. Um, moving along to another Russia story, this is uh, Google Maps. Um, I don't know if they're courting controversy. It's hard to know whether someone's just been a bit daft or not thought something all the way through, but Google Maps has decided to do what few other polities have done and recognise Crimea as part of Russia, despite the fact that it kind of isn't. Right, so if, if, if I may slightly correct you, it's Apple Maps, not Apple Maps. not not Google Maps. Having said that, Google made a similar move in, in 2014, actually, of, of recognising Crimea as, as Russian territory. Um, Apple just were a, a little bit later, I think, to uh, playing into that uh, international hiccup. So if, hiccup. Google, if Google Maps got this wrong the first time, why is Apple Maps getting it wrong now? I think it must be, you know, there's speculation over exactly why it's happened now. Um, but it seems to be that uh, Apple have, or the, the Russian government has been courting Apple over this for a number of months. And they've sort of finally given in. It's worth pointing out that this, uh, that Crimea as part of Russia is only viewable if you're using the Apple software within Russia. <laughs> so outside of outside of Russia, that's it's it's not the case. It's 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 still in Ukraine, but inside of Russia... That's when that's when it starts coming up. When you type in Sevastopol, it comes up as Sevastopol, Crimea, Russia. That, that's at once a thing you, that you can get away with and yet can't get away with because of the global nature of the internet. They were bound to get found out. They must have known that. I think so, but I, I, I you know, I think it's one of these cases again. It's these massive tech giants who are really getting, uh, getting their hands dirty with global politics, and it doesn't really seem to matter because it, you know people still want the technology. I'm still going to go upstairs and use my iPhone and my Apple Mac. So. I think it's uh, probably part of a wider problem. Uh, On the subject, moving seamlessly along on the subject (laughs) of technology, um, I don't even know where... I mean, there's any number of jokes that could be made, but I just kept coming back to the fact that we are talking about cows wearing (laughs) virtual reality headsets. I mean, the thing is, anything cows do is funny. Right. I mean, they're just inherently... It's a, it's a good news story. Uh, it, it is. A, it, a, a, you're, you're, you're about to say good moves story. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. This, uh, this is scuppered. It, it's just the kind... It's the equivalent of one of my favourite scenes in all of cinema, which is from the underrated comedy masterpiece Top Secret, where for reasons I no longer recall, there's just a shot of a cow wearing Wellington boots. And I, I, I don't know why that's as funny as it is, but it is. And it wouldn't but be think, funny if it was anything but a cow. I think it's, it's, it's animals doing human things, I think, is always a little bit, a little bit amusing. There's always something to that, but it's, it's funnier when they're cows. Paige, why are these cows wearing virtual reality headsets? Right, so a dairy farm uh, near Moscow, the Rasmolokov farm, uh, has begun testing virtual reality glasses designed specifically for cows. So the hope is that these sort of futuristic bovines uh, will experience heightened moods. They'll be they'll they'll feel better about themselves, which will in turn so, raise the milk yield. Uh, yeah, okay. Do we know what virtual reality is being pumped into a 
headset that is going to, to throw your own phrase back at you, make a cow feel better about itself. Well, apparently it's going to enable the animals to enjoy views of summer fields year-round. Pastures greener all the time. OK. Well, we'll see how that works out for the monocles. Paige Reynolds, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm not sure if the next item is necessarily going to follow cows wearing virtual reality headsets, but we will do our best. UK election news coming up shortly. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Now, the United Kingdom is continuing to subject itself to its most wretched and undignified general election campaign since the last one. However, there has been an interesting developing theme of this contest, the sudden camera shyness of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who for most of his career to date has not been noteworthy for his abhorrence of media exposure. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Monocle 24's Rhys James. Um... Reese, at the heart of this is the fact that Boris Johnson was supposed, as all the party leaders were, to submit to a half-hour-long interrogation by Andrew Neil of the BBC. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, Boris jo- Johnson's major opponent, did this uh, and got eaten alive, I think it's fair to say. Since when uh, Boris Johnson has seemed notably unenthused about following suit? Yeah, he's going to hiding. Um, Basically, he uh, didn't take part in last night's TV debate on Channel 4 on climate change. uh, And the broadcaster decided to put a melting ice plinth in his place. Um, And the the problem with this is that he's in a kind of hiding to nothing. So if he appears on the programme, the Tories' um, climate change and environmental policies over the past 10 years get torn to shreds. If he doesn't turn up, as happened last night, he get you know they 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 come up with a kind of clever ploy to kind of to 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 make fun of him. So, but at, at the heart of this is that is the is the Tories' apparent lead in the polls. Um, the YouGov poll that was out on Wednesday is suggesting that um, the Tories are going to win a majority of around sixty-eight to seventy seats. So he doesn't need to do anything. So uh, is that where the Tories are now at? Thinking just don't make any yeah. big mistakes and we've got this. Don't stuff it up. But. They have made a calculation, though, haven't they, that he is getting beaten up on for apparently so far as we know so far, ducking out of the Andrew Neil interview. Why do you think they've made the calculus that it's better to take that beating than take the beating you would actually get from doing the interview? Because I think that Neil knows how to really put politicians under pressure. Now, it's, it's He also con- knows Boris Johnson quite well. He knows Boris Johnson quite well. They work together and... Stuff will come up, as it did with Jeremy Corbyn's interview with Andrew Neil. Um, Neil asked him about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Knew to ask him, you know, questions about whether he was going to apologise over the way that the Jewish community had been uh, treated in the UK by the Labour Party. Um, and Boris Johnson will be asked some very uncomfortable questions about his personal life, um, about Islamophobia within the Conservative Party. And Johnson's making the gamble, like, you know, look, we're so far ahead in the polls. Do not stuff this up. His advisers are saying to him, don't go on television, don't do these interviews, and you'll win at a canter. On the subject of not stuffing things up, though, how weird is it that Corbyn fumbled the anti-Semitism thing in the Andrew Neil interview so badly? He would obviously have known he was going to get asked it. Uh, and, and he got offered what struck me as a couple of obvious open goals. There was the, the one about, you know, is this example of an obviously anti-Semitic statement obviously anti-semitic it took him about four attempts to say yes uh, and then he just wouldn't do the obvious thing and say sorry but i think the question was framed in such a way that that 
Corbyn's kind of on a hide into nothing. So either he apologises, and that becomes the, the the front page headline in the UK. Uh, the, you know, the next day, you know, Corbyn ap- apologises for for anti-Semitism in Labour Party, or he doesn't apologise, and that becomes that itself becomes the mm. headline. It's a really, um, really kind of cleverly phrased question. He should have expected it, but I suspect he thought that he could just kind of move on as, as he so often does. And either he doesn't care about the problems of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party um, or he just wanted to kind of move it on to, you know, things that he wants to talk about, like the NHS, like education and nationalisation of services. Well, on that subject, so much of this campaign has been dominated by the two major parties, each trying to argue that they're slightly less racist than the other major party. And what on a that, choice. Yeah, and on that basis, you should vote for us. But does it strike you that any other issues are, in fact, cutting through? I don't think they are cutting through. I think this is a, you know, this is still very much a kind of, you know, an election about what what happens uh, in, you know, the beginning of January and the process towards kind of um, Britain potentially leaving the, Euro- uh, the European Union at the end of January. But I think there are some great policies. I think the, the Labour Party in particular has got some really progressive policies. But um, you know, there's no point in having those policies if you don't think that the the person who is you know ultimately going to be enacting them is able to lead the country. And Jeremy Corbyn isn't going to be prime minister. A potential wild card descending on the race next week in the shape of US President Donald Trump, who is due to arrive in the UK for a NATO summit. How keen or otherwise do you think Boris Johnson is going to be for the the glad-handing, grinning photo opportunity? I don't think he will be. I think the only thing that actually unites the British people is their hatred of Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, left and right and either, you know, nobody's particularly kind of keen on him. But actually, that's a, that's possibly an area that kind of Jeremy Corbyn could make some kind of potential headway in this uh, in this general election. He's been uh, he's been very strongly anti-Trump for uh, since uh, since his election in uh, 2016. Um, and if the issue of the NHS being on uh, the cards in any kind of future uh, trade negotiation rears its head, Again, that could be, um, you know, that could be a, a bit of a positive for the Labour Party and Corbyn. Rhys James, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. The Monocle Christmas Market returns to London next month on the 7th and 8th of December as Midori House is transformed into a winter wonderland for the eighth year running. Why not join Tyler Brule and his team for glue wine, gifts and festive cheer in the heart of London? Browse stalls run by some of our favourite global brands and try your luck on our tombola. Get into the Yuletide spirit by picking up some presents while being serenaded by a Swedish choir and saying hello to grazing reindeer, our resident mascot Monochan the Owl and of course Santa all the way from Rovaniemi in Finland. Stave off the cold with warming and hearty dishes from the Monocle Cafe and enjoy holiday tips and gift advice from the Monocle team. Join us at the Monocle Christmas Market at Midori House on Dorset Street in Marylebone on Saturday the 7th and Sunday the 8th of December. We ho ho hope to see you there. Tervetuloa. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. We are, it says here, circling the drain to hell, and I'm your guide. Here is a look at what we learned this week. We learned this week that there is probably a future election already in the bag for any UK party which bans all politicians from dabbling in anything approximating youth culture. 
Senior Conservative Michael Gove attempted to pick an online row, or as Gove would doubtless term it, beef, with the rapper and non-conservative Stormzy. Gove delighted Twitter with an excruciating appropriation of hip-hop slang, which translates mercifully badly to radio, so instead here's Gove endearing himself to high school students a couple of years back by performing probably the only song in the history of popular music whiter than he is. Hey everybody, take a look at me. I've got street credibility. I may not have a job, but I have a good time with the boys I meet down on the line. We also learned, moving seamlessly along on the subject of woeful misapprehension of popular culture by conservative politicians, that 2020's Eurovision Song Contest will be down one contestant. Hungary has withdrawn from the warble off, and while no official explanation has been offered, it is widely supposed that Hungary's Dua nationalist government has certain difficulties with aspects of the spectacle. One pro-government Hungarian commentator has damned Eurovision as a homosexual flotilla. It would be pleasant to think that certain victory awaits any entrant who competes in next year's contest under exactly that name. In the meantime, we are compelled to wonder how Eurovision will struggle along without material of this calibre. Last year's Hungarian entrant, Josi Papai, who belly flopped in the semi-final. We learned of fears of a global shortage of halloumi cheese, prompted by a growing Chinese appetite for the salty, squeaky sheep and or goat and or cow milk-based comestible. Though Cypriot farmers are wringing their ruminants dry, they fear that they may be unable to keep up with demand. Disappointingly for these conspiracy theory adult times, nobody yet appears to be blaming this on the furtive machinations of a secret society known as the the Illuminati. Don't write in. You can't do news items about cheese without a pun. It's the law. In Sweden, we learn that there is no daunting the burghers of the port of Jevla, who have once again erected an immense straw goat, despite the long-cherished tradition by which some ne'er-do-well burns the thing down at the earliest available opportunity. The 2019 goat, untorched as we go to air, represents a potential hat-trick. The last two have survived the festive season intact. We can only hope for a return to the glory years of 2005, when the goat was struck by a flaming arrow fired by someone dressed as a gingerbread man, or 1978, when it was kicked to bits by vandals who'd presumably forgotten their matches. We learned, indeed, that Sweden may be inclining to push its luck where dominance of festive tradition is concerned. A pilot project in Björkliden, in Sweden's far north, has staked a claim on Santa's birthplace to rival the Finnish hegemon. Here's Monocle 24's very arguably biased Santa Claus origin myths desk chief, Marcus Hippie. It just happens to be a commonly accepted fact that Santa is from Finland. I mean, have you ever heard anyone think that Santa would actually be an abolitioning, herring-eating, middle-aged man paying ridiculous taxes? And also Finland's done an amazing job in creating Santa Claus Village in Rovaniemi what it is today. I mean, 600,000 visitors annually. Fair enough, if Sweden still wins over a slice of Santa tourism, at least us Finns, we still have Moomins and Tom of Finland. 
Elsewhere, we learned in what is hopefully not an unhappy economic portent that possession of a literal licence to print money is no longer any guarantee of prosperity. Delarue, which makes the UK's banknotes, announced that it was at risk of collapse, not least to the most ironic business setback of our age, its loss of the post-Brexit British passport printing contract to a Franco-Dutch company. And we learned of the triumph of a bunch of long-suffering villagers in Kato State in the north of Nigeria. Their town had been known for decades as Ungawa Wawaye, which translates from the local Hausa language as Area of Idiots. The name apparently pertained not to any obvious deficiencies of the locals, but to the town's location alongside a waterway known, for reasons opaque, as Idiotic River. The emir of the vicinity has decreed a change of name to Yalwa Kadana, which reads as the much more encouraging area of plenty. There might well be more mirth to be had from the fact that Area of Idiots persisted with the name as long as it did, but it would seem unseemly when broadcasting from a country currently holding an election which seems on course to earn it that very title. And with that clangingly obvious gear grinding back to where we came in device, for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. Finally on today's show, the worlds of television, journalism, literature, poetry, criticism and several more besides have this week been left contemplating one unfillable pair of shoes, those vacated by Clive James, who died on Sunday, aged 80. To join me for a look back at a remarkable life and talent, I'm joined by Monocle's senior editor, Rob Bound. Um, Rob, more than most public figures that I can think of, it is genuinely hard to know where to start with Clive James, a point you made in your obituary of him in the Monocle Minute uh, earlier today. Yeah, where do you start? I mean, I guess, I, I, for me, growing up in the in the 1980s in the UK, I, f- I first saw him on television, and then you were kind of like, oh, he's, got, he's got a way with words, he's kind of amusing, <laughs> this kind of laconic Aussie draw, um, his sort of writerly way with a TV script, which obviously was all his own work. Um, and then you kind of like looked at the back catalogue as you got older and realised that he was an estimable man of words, a scholar, a contemporary of and friend of um, Martin Amis, Ian McEwan, Julian Barnes, even Kingsley Amis, Christopher Hitchens, all these kind of great luminary literary lights um, and drinkers. And uh, and he fitted into so many different worlds, it seemed. Uh, he, he did. I mean, like you, I grew, I grew up in Sydney, or partially in Sydney, as Clive James did. Mm. And I think I first became aware of him in the 80s, watching him doing sort of amusing television shows about zany Japanese game shows uh, <laughs> and so forth. But again, it was yeah. that same thing. And then you sort of rummaging for something to read on your parents' bookshelf. You see these sort of volumes of well-thumbed paperback memoir by yeah. someone called Clive James. And you think, oh, same bloke. <laughs> Look at you look at the you look at the dust jacket. You're like, wow, he was busy um, on the Japanese game shows. It's the kind of program. It was sort of the sort of programming you maybe couldn't do. You couldn't get away with his uh, his judgment of other cultures. Perhaps was um, was a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Would, would not have gone through the the BBC editorial mill. These maybe days, perhaps. not. But it was always, at least in my recollection, it's not like he wasn't making fun of a lot of the other cultures oh, yeah. he dealt with. Not yeah. just Japan, but it was. And this is a hard thing to do and stay funny. It was always 
he's actually kind of affectionate. Yeah. Um, he was lamp- He was sort of lampooned himself, his fiction. I mean, Private Eye was no friend of his, although I think it helped to sort of boost sales of his poetry and his memoirs and his novels. I mean, his poetry was wonderful. His memoirs were quite name-droppy, um, but as, as these things want to be. Can I just align on the Japanese game shows? Please. Um, I always remember him sort of signing off one of these missives um, from from Takeshi's Castle or whatever one of these <laughs> brutal shows was, and sort of in his in his own way, sort of saying those who drown are disallowed from going through to the next round. <laughs> um, it's it was always it was always um, show and tell. Uh, I, I did have the enormous good fortune of interviewing him in about two thousand and one mm. for whatever book he was flogging at the time, and I. I turned up slightly nervous. If, if you grow up again in Australia, Clive James occupies such an enormous part yeah. of the popular culture. Um, and I t- turned up vaguely afeard that he'd be a bit, I'm Clive James, who the hell are you? And he would have been entirely <laughs> within his rights. But I, I was delighted yet in retrospect, unsurprised to discover that there was absolutely no adjustment so far as I could tell between the Clive James uh, on screen, on radio or on the page and the Clive James actually there in front Sitting of you. Sitting on the sofa opposite you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how do you interview someone like that? Where, where, where did you start with him? Um, I can't was it for a specific thing that he was talking it about? It was something he was trying to sell at the time. It yeah. was it was for a, a, a lesser magazine than Monocle, although Monocle at that point was was not even a thing. Um <laughs> he was one of those interviewers where interviewees where to an extent you would just ask him a question and then strap yourself in while off he went. But he was also one of those people to whom would actually turn back to the journalist whose opinion he had no reason to be interested in really and say, what do you think? What do you think, yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, I heard from many, many other people that that was, that was him all over. He was genuinely inquisitive and genuinely curious. Um, which is why he was so good. Um, his TV columns that had started appearing in the late 1970s and 80s in The Observer, which were turned into wonderful book, collected um, books such as The Crystal Bucket. What a great name for the <laughs> box. What a great name for the telly. Um, but he was so generous with television, all of its beauty and of its... And its banality, he saw both imposters just the same sort of thing. Um, coming from a, sort of as a classic scholar and a, and a man who'd met and drunk with Nabokov, for God's sake, you know, people people like this. Um, he was he was naturally suited to not be snobbish about the medium on which he ended up becoming a star, which was very charming as well. Uh, and, and he did do that thing of of writing reviews that were funnier than the comedy he was yeah. describing and more interesting than the documentaries he was describing. <laughs> it's it, it's kind of daunting if you've ever attempted to work in you know any related field at all. You just start. Why are any of the rest of us bothering? Really, a long really? shadow is cast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do you have just before we we check out a, a particular favourite Clive James work or memory? or thing I loved I loved Clive James on TV that was the my first that was my, well actually can you can you can you lend me a biro do you know the, the poem can you lend me a biro it's the most beautiful love poem off the top of my head it I is, do not it is worth it's worth um, googling um, and I just also loved the way that he would um, when he he would sort of do video um, interviews with various people I always just like any interview that starts can you hear me Zsa Zsa Gabor <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to nominate uh, while we have time yes. uh, Cultural Amnesia uh, mm. his, his great hefty non-fiction work which only Clive James could have pulled off it's like he basically sat down and decided I'm going to write a more or less total history of absolutely everything in a single volume and kind of landed it, yeah. it and the thing is, it's it's not only is it smart and learned and reflective, it's, again, it's funny and it's witty and in no way 
though he clearly was smarter than almost everybody reading him, you were never beaten over the head with that. It was always it was always that thing of follow me. I want to show you something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and and I do have to cite the obvious one in case our international listeners may have missed it, which is, I mean, obviously. All of Unreliable Memoirs and all his memoirs are worth reading, but please, anybody who hasn't already read it, if you just Google Unreliable Memoirs Billy Cart scene, it's it's about 15 paragraphs of how to do proper comic writing, and yeah. I promise you uh, it will not be a waste of however long you spend on it. Latest Readings um, is also very good, which is one of the last things he wrote where he revisited classics. TV, film, and and literature, and they're so good. What does a what does a man in his seventies think about the things he loved as a as a thirty year old sort of journalist? Really, really wonderful stuff, nourishing stuff. There was also a thing as well where he he, he did not observe any any barrier between high culture and low culture. Yeah, he right. approached it all on its on its own terms. Yeah, um, I think only people who are supremely brilliant like that can wear their learning as lightly as he did. Clive James, uh, there shall be no other, unfortunately. Thank you, Rob. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Today, it was produced to within an inch of its life by Augusta Machelari. Our studio manager was Zoe Kilborn. Monocle's House View will be back tomorrow morning at 9am. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Listener.